0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander and as always I'm joined by Kobus van Staden from the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University in lovely Cape Town, South Africa. Kobus, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, uh, apologies to our listeners. We're a couple days delayed in getting our podcast out this week. Uh, the, the internet gods here in, in Asia did not uh, bestow uh, any luck on us on Sunday when we normally record. So we're coming to you a couple days later because we're back online. So again, for those who are wondering why we're a little bit late, we blame it on the on internet outages here in, uh, in Asia. So uh, we're going to do a little bit different style of show today. And normally, we talk about three topics and we kind of break it down and analyze them. Uh, but today we're really going to talk about just one. And in particular, there were two conferences that were going on related to Chinese media in Africa. There was also a very prominent feature on Al Jazeera English's listening post show on the Chinese media in Africa. So we thought this would be a great opportunity to invite uh, Ingenio Gagliadone, who is a research fellow at the University of Oxford. Uh, good morning, I think it is. Or good afternoon.
1: Good, well, it's already afternoon. Okay, but, uh, it's already yeah, afternoon. Just, just
0: about. Ingenio uh, was, was actually uh, featured on this uh, this episode of Listening Post, talking about the Chinese media presence and the increased right. uh, investment that they've made. So we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about two key parts of this, though. First is the, the narrative that the Chinese are trying to bring to Africa and the politics and the geopolitics behind their media push. Then we're going to kind of back up and talk to Ingenio also about – the, the technology behind the scenes that a number of African countries are using to suppress and oppress people using technology. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, and again, we really want to emphasize, too, that China is not alone and they're not a sole power who is selling some of this controversial technology? And we'll get Eugenio's take on that. Cobus, first, let's talk about the two conferences that you highlighted in your in your briefing note today uh, that you sent me. Talk to us about one that you went to, and also one that was in London, if, I, if I'm correct.
2: Yeah. So the one that uh, the two uh, conferences about China media stuff that happened recently. Um, I was one at one in Johannesburg that was arranged by the Heinrich Girls Foundation and also the University of the Fils-Vatersrand in Johannesburg. Um, And that was an interesting kind of uh, roundtable talk with a bunch of journalists, a bunch of uh, you know, NGO people and then a bunch of academics um, talking about, you know, different issues about reporting the China-Africa story. Um, and, you know, some of the interesting stuff that came out there was uh, just real disconnections, you know, kind of disconnections between journalists and academics, between Chinese and Africans, um, and also between different kinds of Chinese journalists. So, you know, it was very interesting to hear that kind of different views from the State-owned media versus people who work, who are freelancers, who work for you know, kind of non-Chinese um, groups, or work for uh, independent uh, publications like Zaxin. Um So it was, yeah, it was really, really interesting. It, it, it gave a lot of of, um, of substance. And then um, Eugenio, Eugenio was um, involved in one at Oxford University. I understand. So Eugenio, what what was that one about?
1: Uh, the one was, uh, it was the first uh, time, actually, Then we had the same table a uh, uh, representative of uh, the Chinese media and CCTV Africa in particular and C. Uh, the director of the Africa Bureau uh, there, Mr. Wen Xiaoyan, and uh, the BBC. And uh, it was a very interesting dialogue uh, uh, between different ideas of journalism. And, uh, and uh, we also had academics sort of to comment and reflect uh, on uh, what was being said Like the two different parties. So it was an exist. of learning from each other and sort of getting different perspective of uh, what they mean with journalism.
0: Okay, let's, let's kind of spend a little bit of time. That's a great starting point for us about the different definition of journalism. You know, right. I've been a journalist for 25 years now, and one wow. of the things that I was steeped in from the earliest days was, you know, Woodward and Bernstein was this idea, you are a check on power. You are, you are the fifth estate that hope that keeps power honest. You represent the voice of the people. Um, you are this kind of force for good in society. The Chinese don't have that same perspective on journalism. So one of the things you've talked about in some of your writings is this different perspective on the role of the journalist in society. Kind of talk about that in relation to what was discussed at the conference.
1: Yeah, they, they, they really push this idea of the positive reporting uh, And the positive reporting takes on different shapes. Uh, On one end, uh, it can be a sort of a bit of institutionalized way to... Uh, report what uh, a government has done, of the good side of things, uh, but in relation to Africa there is something more powerful there. It is uh, the idea that Africa got such a bad publicity in the Western media, and uh, a new story, a new narrative needs to be developed. Uh, and uh, And in a way it's true, because uh, a lot of countries in Africa are growing at double digit, uh, uh, and uh, we don't hear that much about that. Uh, so I think the, the Chinese media are also coming at a time, you know, we are not in the 1980s or early 1990s, uh, where China, where Africa is uh, is making big progress uh, in many different directions, and uh, that story is only partially uh, told uh, in uh, in the Western media. Yeah. So it's quite a unique combination right now, and I think it comes at an interesting time.
0: Well, it does, and I, and I can actually testify to that. You know, I was based in Kinshasa for a period of time, and several of the reporters that that I was there with, you know, would complain about how They would pitch alternative stories, you know, stories beyond just rape, famine, war, child, you know, child soldiers to their editors in London. What I find so remarkable, and this is, again, when I was at France 24 in Paris and Radio France International, this kind of testifies to the same kind of mentality that exists in London. What people have to understand Mm -hmm. is that when editors are making decisions about stories – The people who make those decisions oftentimes have never been to Africa. They've never really been outside of London or Paris. They're just based on a desk in London. So you're pitching up a story about Botswana's economic growth. And that's not what they know about Botswana. What they know about Botswana is the fact that it's got the highest AIDS rate in Africa. So they say, well, no, that's not what people want. So we get this – what we call this embedded narrative, and the embedded narrative for the Western media in Africa is in fact this idea that if it's not war, child soldiers, rape, or any kind of the starving baby stories, uh, people in the West won't be interested in it. Uh, Nicholas Kristof, who's the uh, New York yeah. Times columnist, he was very famous in saying that if he didn't profile white people and what they were doing in Africa, his <laughs> readers would not pay attention. Sure. So so, the, so China comes along, Cobus, and says, we're going to tell this story differently – so far, it's been, what, about six months to a year that CCTV's been on the air? How long has it been?
1: Yeah, yeah, January January, 2012. Yeah. Okay, so project. it's been a year. Yes, yes.
0: We're now looking back, Kobus, and what do you think of the story that uh, CCTV is telling? Are they challenging that embedded narrative in the West?
3: You know, I'm not. I'm not sure whether they're really changing it con- consistently. You know, kind of. It's, it's difficult for me to say. Obviously, they put out so much, so much work and so much reporting, and they have to cover certain stories. You know, so, so they also have to respond to certain realities on the ground. Um, you know, I think the, the, there's two things to say. In the first place, the the positivity of their coverage, whether you know how positive it is, needs to be looked at. In the second place, the very fact that they that they're adding another voice, that they're adding an, a different uh, a different kind of perspective, one that isn't isn't coming to them, isn't coming to us via the old empire. You know that itself is valuable. I think. Um, you know, so I was watching CCTV the other day, and they had a, a, a kind of a, a TV debate um, between three people, two of whom were very pro Chinese, and uh, and one was a kind of you know independent um, analyst about how good China's um, you know China's investment in Africa is, and you know what the effect will be after after the past. Congress, and it was just interesting. Is just it's something that, that that the West would never cover, even you know, no, you know whether it's positive or negative. The West would never even really particularly look at that, you know, um, the, or they would only look at it from the perspective of the West being displaced. So I think it's, it's valuable either way. In a way, you know, kind of, in a way, I, I almost don't really mind whether it's positive or negative. In in the very fact that it's there complicates the the situation.
0: Okay. Well, Ingenio, you actually spent time at CCTV's uh, facilities in Nairobi. Yep. Now they, they launched a broadcast facility. With, and one of the things that they did, which was so notable, is they poached some of, of Kenya's most prominent and prestigious journalists, well-known journalists, to actually come and work on the network. And this is another point that I find that's interesting about what CCTV has done. They did this both in the U.S. with their operation in Washington and they've done it in in Beijing, uh, in Nairobi. When you go to the Radio France International newsroom and the France Venkat newsroom, there are no Africans. Yep. And one of the things about the Western media when they actually – or no, Africans is an exaggeration. There's maybe one. <clears throat> and so the, one of the things I find remarkable about the BBC, about France 24 about some of the traditional legacy media covering Africa who feel that they have you know, some, some, some history covering the continent is how few Africans are actually participating in the narrative. Uh, and one of the things that CCTV has tried to do is actually to make the majority of their staff African from the continent. Uh, now – has that worked? Is the management of su- you know, sufficiently flexible to be able to, 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 to manage this process of African journalism?
1: Well, I, I have to say that I was really impressed when I when I visited CCTV Africa and uh, I spent some time with them a few days and uh, I had access to the newsroom uh, and uh, it is true, it's the uh, journalists, the Kenyan journalists, they're mostly Kenyan and there are so, a few South Africans uh, are really the one running the show and uh, there is obviously some oversight from uh, the Chinese uh, senior management, uh, but uh, what I felt there, and, and I believe it was not because I was just doing my bit of participant observation, it was That uh, there was quite a bit of freedom on in choosing the uh, story to report from Africa, and the thing that was really impressive for me in uh, in an age where the BBC, especially as well as Voice of America's and uh, and many newspapers are scaling down their presence in the continent, uh, there were so many resources for journalists uh, for. Journalists working for CCTV Africa, because they sent the Kenyan journalists uh, to travel around the continent and cover the continent uh, uh, from the ground. And that was quite impressive. Of course, there is a lot of skepticism at the same time, because uh, uh, interviewing some of the journalists uh, working now for CCTV, they were saying uh, at the beginning when I was hired, uh, my colleagues were sort of saying to me, Well, you're selling out, uh, and uh, you will regret that, uh, and then uh, you will want to come back to, to the Kenyan media. And with time, things didn't go in that direction at all. And uh, and it seems that speaking with independent journalists, who are now working still for the for the Kenyan media, they're also looking at CCTV with quite a bit of interest. Um, so this is the positive side. Uh, on the other end, there is uh, an understanding, uh, a kind of in, um, informal understanding that uh, certain stories uh, are forbidden. And China has been very clear about what is forbidden. What, you know, you what can't would talk those stories about...
0: be? Let, let's yeah, go well, through. Well,
1: obviously the Dalai, you know, the Dalai Lama and the Falun Gong and the Tiananmen. And I'm sure if the Dalai Lama visit Mozambique, there won't be a big story on CCTV Africa. But uh, but apart from that, it seems so far from uh, the the short. Uh, window that I had... uh in, uh, in uh, CCTV, there was quite a bit of freedom. And there was, as, I, as we said at the beginning, there was this idea of positive journalism. But with a lot of journalists uh, uh, who I interviewed, I had a chance to interview Beatrice uh, Marshall, which is uh, who is a very impressive uh, uh, anchor. And uh, what she was saying is, uh, for a long time, we looked at the West uh, as the main or the only example of how to do journalism. Even when we disagreed with it, uh, we had to sort of play, uh, play along. Now, China is coming with a different uh, idea. Of journalism. And she didn't say that she likes that. Uh, she works with CCTV, so I don't, in a way she must like it. But she said it gives them more breathing room, so we can sort of uh, look around and there is more space for negotiation.
0: I guess my question is do you think that they would cover, I mean, the Dalai Lama, Falun Gong, those are obvious stories that CCTV won't cover, or if they do cover it, it's done in a very predictable way. But I, I guess to me, yeah. what's more interesting is not that they would cover those stories that you know that they, that they would treat in a certain way, but will they cover. You know, Chinese mining contracts in the DRC. Will they cover, you know, Chinese? That's, that's, you yeah, know, that's inter- really interesting. These, labor are, these are questions in, questions. in, in Zambia. Yeah.
1: Uh, these are issues that came up at a conference actually and uh, and I think this is a big test for for CCTV and uh, all Chinese media because uh, well, I think they did uh, well enough uh, in terms of not reporting too much China on the Africa live bit, the one hour they have every day to report on Africa so it was they were true to their initial intent just reporting stories from Africa to African audiences and I think uh, there is an understanding that uh, you know there are good information. On the continent, but that will be the next step uh, as far as I know, nothing like that has happened, and uh, a lot there is a lot of suspicion that deals will uh, not happen also in the future. But uh, it would be great to see that kind of investigative reporting.
0: Kobus, so let's now talk about the actual substance of the narrative. And this is something that you study at, uh, at Stellenbosch in, in terms of media. Um, you know, one of the things that I was surprised about watching CCTV's coverage of the US elections out of Washington, and I have several friends who now work there. And again, they went to CCTV with a little bit of apprehension, as I'm sure every journalist does. And they came away from the experience covering the US elections just thrilled. And one of the things when you you got from watching CCTV coverage of the U.S. elections from their Washington bureau truly was a distinctive take on the elections. They went to places that the American networks would never have gone for analysis. They went all around the world. They did give a different spin. I didn't think it was actually possible to cover the U.S. elections in really a different way because you feel like they've done it uh, over and over again in the same way, so my my, my question to you is when you look at c c t v coverage in Xinhua reporting in Africa, are they achieving the goal that you know they 've set out according to ingenio 's kind of assessment of it of really telling a different story and breaking the western mold
3: yeah I think one one of the things to keep in mind is that both c c t v and Xinhua have a kind of a a, a double agenda. Um, and i think Xinhua is particularly interesting in this, in this sense obviously Xinhua is very old it started in the in the 1930s already um and it still is state-owned and it's a, it's a, it's a, a part of the state. It's a you know it's it's a, a state department, um, and they've slowly you know until the, the late eighties they had the agenda of, of of purely ideologically pushing China in the developing world. That was the, they were like purely uh, you know basically a a, a a mouthpiece for the party. And since then they've become more all more commercial, and they've they now have this kind of like interesting complicated kind of double agenda, where on the one hand they're supposed to make money and they um, you know they broaden their services and they provide all kinds of services to try and corner markets and to fight with with big news agencies like AP um, you know in the market Um, and at the same time they Still owned by the Communist Party, um, you know, and they still are. You know, the the people that are the research that I've read about Xinhua, it still makes very clear that they are still expected to to play a part in the party and and a part in the kind of bigger kind of project of of China, kind of investing and going out into the world and and telling China's story. So it's I think it's very difficult to really say how they balance that. I think that's the big question.
0: Just yeah, I mean,
3: like, the Communist Party. You know, party- in cases like the American election. It's, pretty easy, you know, kind of because it doesn't really directly reflect on them. But when, you know, in, as, as Eugenio said, the closer it comes to Chinese interests, the more complicated it gets.
0: Yeah. And I think there's a, a point worth kind of referencing here was, uh, I don't recall the exact date, but the Communist Party propaganda chief uh, came out and, and really in a very poignant, you know, speech, explained what he thought the role uh, of the journalist is, and is to be the, the mouth and the throat of the party. Uh, journalism in China does not extend beyond that. You are to basically, you know, amplify the party's t- decisions. So I- I'm wondering if that will eventually make its way into the Washington and Nairobi bureaus. Also, when, it talk- when you talk about Xinhua, one other thing that was worth mentioning, Xinhua has its own TV network called CNC. Uh, they're broadcasting to the world. Um, it's always kind of interesting to see the difference between CCTV and CNC, and no one's really quite understood the difference between the two, but they are broadcasting in different different languages uh, the worldwide uh, and there you go and so Xinhua Ingenio is something of, of an interesting beast because one of the things they're trying to do is undermine the western news agencies by giving away their service for free so uh we was highlighted in the listening post uh, piece that uh, the nation newspaper in Nairobi gets a free subscription to Xinhua, and they can use it anytime they want. They're not necessarily pressured or obligated to use it. But this is an interesting strategy, particularly in Africa, where many of the news agencies cannot afford an AP, an AFP, or a Reuters subscription. So here comes Xinhua saying, free of charge.
1: Yeah, this is an interesting um, uh, development, but I, I, I've seen other innovation in uh, in, uh, in the case of Sinoa, because they know they're coming in a very crowded market, uh, in, a, in a market also where there are not a lot of money. It's, uh, it's increasingly difficult to, to make money with journalism. So another thing that I noticed is uh, they put a bit of spin on that, but they launched what they call the first mobile newspapers in Africa. And it was a, um, a partnership with Safaricom, uh, the main uh, the, um, operator in Uh, mobile operator in Kenya, to provide uh, um, information on mobile phones, uh, uh, Sinoa's news, uh, uh, every half an hour. And this is not for smartphones. It's also for the stupid phone, you know, a phone that just can receive MMS. Uh, And then another thing that Sinoa has been doing is putting these very big uh, screens uh, in a number of uh, key spots in Africa. There is one, uh, an enormous one, uh, just in front of the African Union building as well as one in Zimbabwe. So there is a lot of uh, trial and error as well and uh, some innovation uh, but willingness to learn uh, how to survive and possibly thrive uh, in a market that is increasingly, is increasingly competitive.
0: Okay, so they're spending a lot of money. What do you think their measure of success is? What do you think they are going to say? You know, they're clearly investing enormous amounts of money into these initiatives. Um, How do they determine success?
1: That's a good question because uh, so far the measure of success, and this can sound paradoxical, is the resources invested into the media. <laughs> and uh, is how many journalists they have and uh, how many hours of reporting, how many news pieces and so forth, which in a way is a powerful narrative because uh, everybody's struggling to cover Africa. It's much more difficult today and the fact that you're increasing the number of, uh, of, uh, of journalists on the ground, in particular, and correspondent uh, is a big message. But apart from that, uh, well, there are very little uh, research uh, on uh, viewers uh, Audiences uh, of uh, CCTV or uh, China Radio International, for that matter. So, uh, one what we really need as researchers, but in general, is uh, independent and uh, thorough audience research, trying to get a sense of whether or not uh, opinions are changing, whether or not people are starting to watch and to listen to uh, to uh, Chinese uh, uh, programs and. Um, and so forth. So we need more research because uh, nothing is available out there, and uh, and this is an encouragement for researchers in Africa in particular, because there are a lot um, of uh, very serious organizations uh, doing doing that and trying to put their spot on uh, on China as well, and not just on the usual suspects.
3: Eugenio, you know, I actually wanted to ask you um, the uh, you know one the frequently um, Xinhua is, is the Described as the you know as the mouth of the party, but in cases yeah. I've read, I've also seen it described as the eyes of the party. And I've I've have read read in the past uh, in the past um, allegations that Xinhua is also involved, you know, in, in kind of in putting together briefing packs, um, you know, and briefing documents about local conditions for the party that get sent back to Beijing on these kind of private channels that are not open to the public. Is that something you've heard as well? As 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 you know, is, is that kind of um exaggerated its influence in that
1: way or is, is that a kind of a big part of their work? To, to be entirely honest, I don't have any hard evidence on that. And uh, I haven't, I just have heard things, but I couldn't verify them myself. But in a way, yeah, same if with historically, me. Yeah, if historically, in the 1950s and 1960s, when there were no embassies uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Africa, but there was, Sino was, was there, they were acting as China's embassy. So there is a legacy there, but uh, this goes back 50 years ago. And as I said, I don't have anything I would say I'm sure and I've seen or I've uh, you know some odd evidence to 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 make that claim
0: Well, just to put this all in context as well, the fact that that China is not alone as being a government that is devoting rather large media resources to Africa. Uh, Again, my my former stomping grounds in Paris at France 24, France 24, uh, they kind of considered Francophone Africa to be a vital area of interest. One of the things that was so interesting from the the France 24 perspective was how clueless the management was that the Chinese were there and how dismissive (laughs) the management was of the Chinese. You know, so when I would talk to them saying, well, you you know that CCTV has just set up this huge operation there. They would be like, oh, it doesn't matter. You know? <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. you know and so I wonder if the, if the Chinese are – you know, are, you know what was the George Bush quote? You know, the the the, the, the soft expectations. There was this great George Bush quote that, uh, of underestimating people because of low expectations and I wonder if because, you know, the Chinese have such a terrible reputation internationally when it comes to journalism and media, that in some ways, people really aren't paying attention to the growth of Chinese media in Africa because they just think it's a bunch of, you know, yahoos who don't know anything about journalism where, you know, in Britain and in France and in America, the VOA Way the BBC and such not these government broadcasters well they're not propaganda they're really actually doing journalism so do you think that there's the, the soft uh, the soft discrimination of low expectations is, is, is having an effect here
1: so it's true that in the West uh, there is uh, a bit of complacency. There is uh, a strong narrative, this idea of journalism uh, as the fourth estate, and uh, the journalists that want to cover the truth. Uh, and some, in some cases, Western journalists sort of look down uh, to those who support the idea of positive reporting. Uh, but we have to put that in context. Uh, uh, of what is going on in Africa right now, the big strength of uh, Chinese reporting is that they do have resources uh, that few others international broadcasters uh, have uh, right now. So, And there is a lot of trial and error going on. We have seen it in many different areas, and the media is just one example, uh, where China has come somehow with a policy, but really different strategies are tried out uh, and the language also changes over time. So I would expect that with the number of journalists, especially uh, high-powered um, African journalists uh, being given the chance uh, to cover the continent with Chinese resources, uh, things might change over time. And also, uh, this, is, this is a difficult uh, provision to make uh, a different forecast, but uh, um, I would expect uh, the Chinese media to change quite dramatically in Africa in the years to come. And uh, I think there is more room for experimentation in Africa. There is definitely more room for experimentation in Africa than there is in China. And uh, I would see at the beginning there might be a steep learning curve, uh, but uh, things might change in the long term. And your friend, of Van Carter, can we say, oh shoot, we didn't see it on time, we didn't see it coming, and now they are the first on the market.
0: Yeah, well, it's not surprising that the French aren't the first to see trends come along. So I won't actually surprise you know. <laughs> so, uh, Kobus, let's get the last word on this topic to you. You know, in your circle at Stellenbosch. Uh, you know, where obviously there's an interest in China Africa relations. Does anybody watch CCTV? Do you know anybody in your circle that watches it? I mean, this is the key question is anybody actually paying attention?
3: I think um, I think slowly but surely CCTV is gaining influence in Africa, and part of that is is the reason that African audiences or African countries don't necessarily agree with the West on the role of the reporter. Some African countries see a lot of value in the reporter speaking as part of a collective um, and not necessarily being as very very critical of the government you know so i don 't think one should necessarily assume that African audiences in, like it either way either the CCTV, the CCTV way or Or the Western way, you know, different audiences are different. And in some cases, they want reporters to be more respectful of the government, more kind of, you know, part of society, not as individualistic. Um, And I think uh, people aren't looking enough at at that kind of overlap between African culture and Chinese culture.
0: Sure. Ingenio, you said you had one final point on the subject.
1: Yeah, and um, something very interesting that happened to me yesterday, we had a seminar on China and Africa in the media, and one of the students asked me, is there a cold war of journalism going on in Africa? And my answer is quite the opposite, And uh, because what is happening right now is uh, the established vision of journalists are being uh, debated and discussed uh, in different ways, and I think this is really healthy. At the same time, we have a risk, and I feel it in my own research, that uh, uh, when we talk about the Chinese model of journalism, if there is anything like that, uh, and the Western model, we forget uh, that uh, media in Africa are becoming increasingly powerful. uh, And... uh, there is, uh, it's not a model, but there is definitely different types of journalists emerging from Africa. So there is, there is sometimes to think that uh, there is a blank slate. There is not a tradition of journalism. And uh, some of the founding fathers of uh, you know, Ghana or uh, uh, Kenya or Tanzania were journalists themselves. Uh, and, uh, and still today in places like Kenya or, uh, or Ghana as well, there is a, a very vibrant media system. So when we think about uh, China and the West, we have to think at a very complex media system them, whereas these are just uh, some of the voices, uh, but there are so many other voices, and there is such a great interest for politics and journalism, and we have to put that in greater context, and these debates shouldn't overshadow the, the changes, the big changes in African journalism today.
0: That's right, and I think there's, uh, you know, CCTV is part of a broader trend of just more choice in African media, not only on the yeah. continental s- scale, but also on the local level. You're seeing more newspapers, more radio stations, more websites, more blogs, so this is yeah. really a a period of, of wonderful renaissance now there is a darker side to all of this and this is something we want to talk about uh, I will I will put my, uh, I'll disclose the fact that I am a disciple of Evgeny Morozov who is an academic from right. Stanford <laughs> uh, who wrote a book called The Net Delusion and he's really a, a cynic when it comes to the power of the internet so just as Morozov's point is that just as the internet can be a force for good and liberation it can also be equally used by governments and, and corporations as a force to oppress and to control people. And, and, and you know, it, it, it does both. And oftentimes, you know, the, the, the what he calls the optimists, you know, overlook the, um, the, the the downsides of the web. And one of the things that you've done research on, particularly in Ethiopia, which is really a showcase yep. for this, is this idea that China is facilitating The the censorship of the web and the oppression of Internet users and and particularly political dissidents in places like Ethiopia and even in Kenya potentially uh, by the sale of certain technologies that allow for the monitoring and the control of the web. Talk to us a little bit about that kind of darker side of the media equation in Africa from the Chinese point of view.
1: Yeah, well, I think this is interesting at two different levels, and I will provide you with uh, two examples. The first one is a bit more difficult and less familiar, and the second one belongs more to the common idea of censorship that we have. Uh, on the first one, uh, Ethiopia, the Ethiopian government uh, it invested Hundreds of millions of dollars to develop a system that there's no equal elsewhere in Africa. This system is based on the internet protocol, but uses mostly video conferencing uh, to connect uh, the center of power. The government, the prime minister, as well as other ministers and other members of the government with the peripheries of the state and sort of instruct uh, what uh, um, administrators and political uh, uh, representatives should be doing. And there has been an allegation that this system was used uh, also before elections uh, uh, to support the incumbent party. And... Um, um, these, uh, uh, these two very unique pieces of technologies, uh, one is called WaredaNet and the other one is Coolnet and penetrates into the schools, uh, were developed uh, with money from the Ethiopian government, but uh, through the support of Western companies, and Cisco System and UG Networks, uh, were the two companies involved. Uh, so as you can see, China is just becoming uh, uh, the latest actor in uh, this uh, uh, scenario. And uh, now Cisco has, uh, has started working on this program, and now it is uh, ZDE, uh, one uh, of the China 's Telecom giant uh, uh, that is supporting the Ethiopian government. Uh, and the second story is more familiar, and it's true that China has uh, helped uh, the Ethiopian government uh, in uh, uh, containing and controlling uh, its information space. And one thing that's even more interesting that China has done is Ethiopia, as far as I know, is the only country in Africa that has managed to maintain a monopoly of telecommunication uh, while increasing the access uh, to mobile phones and to the Internet uh, all other countries that have uh, uh, increased their penetration uh, have done so through competitions. Uh, and without China, nothing like this uh, would have been possible. So, the kind of a model that is emerging from Ethiopia is one where the state is really uh, the prime mover, the only actor in the telecommunication market, uh, and retains full control uh, of. Uh, uh, of information space,
0: but uh, Ethiopia certainly is not the only country on the continent that you know attempts to restrict information. We saw this in Libya. Uh, we've seen it in yep. Egypt. We've seen it, you know. But are some of the more you know democratically oriented societies like Ghana and Kenya also falling prey to some of these uh, these, these tendencies?
1: This is interesting, and absolutely not. Uh, It seems that uh, despite Chinese uh, companies are very active in both countries, Huawei is building a a very impressive e-government system in Ghana, and uh, uh, China Star Times is doing the digital yoga for for Kenya. There is no signal that. um, these companies or a stronger relationship with uh, either Chinese authorities or uh, Chinese uh, private operators uh, is constraining the information space. So it seems that he, also in this case, uh, China is quite true to his words, you know, things come with no strings attached. So if they are asked uh, to to build a sort of controlled uh, and centralized information space, uh, this is what they're going to do. If they are asked and they come into an open uh, environment uh, where uh Strong institutions are in place uh, that guarantee and uh, freedom of expression and uh, an open debate in the information sphere. The Chinese would just play along uh, and uh, help governments uh, developing uh, these or other operators developing these kind of systems.
0: I mean, you, you're really hitting on Morozov's main point here, which is on Morozov says that you know the U.S. and the Western powers speak out of both sides of their mouth. On the one hand, you've got Hillary Clinton, you know, going through Africa talking about freedom and democracy and openness and to be wary of cozying up too close with the Chinese and on the other hand you've got companies like Cisco who are selling the very tools to oppress uh you know people in various countries there and so i mean that ultimately at least you know the Chinese in Ethiopia and this is this is a horrible way to say at least um, there isn't an inconsistency there but i guess my big point is the Chinese are no better or any worse than any other major power operating
1: with telecommunications companies in, yeah, in that's, Africa yeah that's 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 Yeah, that's a good point, and I think those who pay the price, of course, are those oppressed, but uh, on the one hand uh, they can decide to be oppressed in Ethiopia, or they can't decide, but in the case of Ethiopia, uh, they are oppressed by a consistent uh, uh, government which says, we come with no strings attached, and so we play according to the rule of the state we uh, have relationship with. In the other case, it's just the hypocrisy of capitalism that allows people, governments in this case, uh, to to censor, and uh, they can sort of bang the the, the drama of freedom of expression, but then a lot of companies uh, are providing software for filtering the web. And it is an un- interesting point here, and I think it's also because of China's growing role on the global stage, not just in Africa, as a censor, that Obama's administration has somehow changed its policy on uh, sanctioning um, uh, US-based companies uh, Do it. Making deals with authoritarian countries. Uh, the problem is the definition of who is authoritarian is up to the State Department. Uh, so I'm pretty sure that uh, you know Iran figures pretty high in their list, uh, but uh, Ethiopia will not be considered an authoritarian country in this list. So Cisco will still be able to sell its uh, its uh, equipment uh, to Ethiopia. It can't do it uh, anymore in Iran. So there's a strange mix between rhetoric and uh, geopolitical. Yeah, and
0: unless we forget that the United States has drone bases that it has in Ethiopia, so Ethiopia is oh, yeah. becoming increasingly strategically important to the U.S. government and the U.S. military. Hey, Kobas, last thoughts on this on the technical side of this? To you, in terms of do you kind of foresee the expansion of, of more democracy with the expansion of the web or? Will we see what's happening in Ethiopia and in Rwanda, you know, where the government is playing a much more aggressive role in controlling media? Which force will actually rival out at the end and, and, and kind of become the dominant force in Africa, do you, do you foresee?
3: You know, I think um, the the way to look at how that might work is China itself. You know, in the sense that China has uh, incredibly vibrant, very strong of internet sphere with lots and lots of opinion going back and forth with the state at the same time being incredibly interventionist censoring left and right you know kind of cracking down on keywords you know kind of tweet you know things appear on weibo and disappear half an hour later and you know i, I think in in cases like ethiopia and rwanda where the state is becoming increasingly meddlesome Um, And uh, you know, strengthened in that in that that view by kind of a Chinese model, you're going to probably see uh, a development of the same kind of situation because those countries are also you know kind of putting in very strong kind of um, internet networks. Um, In the case of Ethiopia, maybe less so because everything is so controlled by the state, Um, not only you know the the content but the actual access to the web. And Ethiopia is very, very. Oh, oh, we're um, losing. We're losing, Kobus. You're breaking up there the very quickly. Like one percent of the population.
0: Okay, Kobus, we we didn't get your last yeah, thoughts I'm, I'm there. Done much, but okay, we didn't get your last thoughts there, but we got the gist of it. Uh, and it's probably fair to say, and and you know, Ingenio, just you know, you know, validate me on this that Africa's media environment is far, probably far too diverse to even characterize as a single entity. Uh, so probably yeah. what's happening in Ethiopia will not happen in Accra, will not necessarily be different, you know, be very different than what's happening in Botswana and elsewhere in, in, in Angola. So it, it may be impossible to actually generalize too much about the, these trends with regards to the use of this technology.
1: Yeah, and, uh, and I think it's if you want to look at the bright side, uh, and uh, um, we can see that there are so many more resources and expertise uh, getting into media and telecommunication in Africa. And uh, coming from China or coming from the U.S. Uh, and as I said earlier, we are not in a Cold War scenario where countries have to choose uh, 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 to be on one, on the uh, on the other, and. Uh, of the divide, uh, and uh, there is great possibility, I think, uh, of uh, mixing uh, different uh, strategies, visions, technologies, uh, and to develop uh, quite independent and innovative ways uh, to communicate, uh, and uh, in ways that are responding to the very unique needs that each country, but also within the country, uh, uh, each particular place or community, is finding. So I think uh, the the interest uh, of China, but China, as we said earlier, is not. A Alone at all, there is a lot of uh, uh, investment and growing interest in the media in the continent. Uh, it's for the better.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Your insights were absolutely fascinating. Uh, if people want to follow you and kind of stay on top of some of the different things that you're reading and that you're you're writing, is are you do you have a presence on Twitter or some of the social networks? Yeah, I'm on
1: Twitter, and uh, I have my first name, which is Eugenio, followed by an e. Is Eugenio e? Is I G I N I O E?
0: And one of the things that we'll is do is we will go ahead and post on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. We've got a fantastic community over there, 17,000 strong, mostly wow, Africans, uh, all discussing you know China-Africa relations. And one of the things we're going to talk about is Ingenio's article, Are We Getting China-Africa Media Relations Wrong? This was a piece that he wrote for the Huffington Post back in April. We'll repost it yep. up on Facebook, uh, but it's really a fantastic overview of the subject and uh, keep following Ingenio's different writings he also will post a link and even the video to his latest commentary on uh the listening post on Al Jazeera English so we'll we'll make
1: sure that people get to see that as well guys uh, guys it was it was a pleasure talking to you, you and, might, um, i will keep following you as well that would be and, great uh, i will and be there and look forward to the next edition
0: fantastic and cobo if people want to follow you on the web where can they find you they can find me on Twitter. I'm at Stadenesq. That's
3: S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E.
0: And if you want to follow me, you can follow me at uh, – I'm on Twitter as well at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, tweeting almost every day on China, Africa, uh, the top headlines on uh, in the subject. You know, So it's a little bit like a newswire, if you will. Uh, so you can follow me there. And, of course, you can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud. You can find us on Stitcher and also, of course, on iTunes. And we are on Facebook at Facebook. Facebook. Facebook.com slash China Africa Project. If you click on that orange box that says podcast, you can get the last 25 editions of the podcast. So that should keep you busy for a while. So until next Sunday, uh, internet permitting, we will be back with another edition of the China Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.